What's up, investors? I just got home from a trip about to Cleveland and Houston, and now I'm at house arrest at home in Hawaii since we still have this quarantine rule in place. I think the state opens up on the 15th for those of you guys who want to test to get into the state. But anyway, it looks like we are going to be doing the annual mastermind in January virtually instead of in person. I'm a little bit bummed over that, but I think it will be a lot more available to most of you guys who wouldn't have visited otherwise to really get a sense of our community and the caliber of people we have in here. Now, people who are attending are going to be pure passive investors, and everyone's going to apply to get into this small virtual setting. And it is going to be not listening to a bunch of random speakers, but I would say 80% of the interaction will be peer networking and connecting and hopefully be the start of building relationships with other passive accredited investors that you can take forward forever. But anyway, on today's podcast, we are going to be talking about passive losses and the real estate professional status. Now, I think a lot of people in our mastermind group, they come in thinking that they're going to learn about deals and analyzing syndications, which is one big part of it. But I think they get surprised when they realize that the next big piece of it is this tax stuff. Now, please don't send me any hate mail here. I'm just educating hard workers who were told to school, get a good job, work at that job for 40, 50 years and pay all your taxes, that there's a different way. The tax code incentivizes people like us to invest money into projects that add value to society. If we do not do this, then we have to pay taxes. The too many people out there are holding equity in their home or rental property or worse, the bank and not doing their part to stimulate the economy, in my opinion. Again, this is where the government is basically saying that we need to help out and pay taxes via progressive tax bracket system if we're not out there stimulating the economy or putting our money into projects. What is inspiring about investors is that we are the ones who are taking the risk to move the country forward through uncertain times, and we are the ones being rewarded to do so. I've got my tax form on my website at simplepassivecashflow.com tax. So you can see how much taxes I actually paid and you can read the rest of the tax guide there. And um, it's shocking. It shocked me. If you haven't interacted yet, please join the club and book a onboarding call now that I'm at home stuck in quarantine. All right. Enjoy the show. This is a story about a dude named Lane. Then one day he went and tried to rent them out, and then he became one of the best domain. Hey, Simple Passive Cashflow listeners. Today we have Brandon Hall, a CPA. We are going to be talking about some of the very commonly used tactics that we talk about almost every other week in the mastermind. You guys can learn more about that at simplepassivecashflow.com slash journey. Mostly accredited investors in there where we're talking about how we're going to customize what we're going to talk about generally today. But yeah, thanks for jumping on, Brandon. These questions always come up. So it's always great to get a real CPA to kind of break it down for us. Yeah, happy to be here and happy to help. So let's kind of start start from the top, right? Like syndication investors get passive losses. Maybe if you can kind of break that down and then we can kind of get into, well, how, how do we use those? Sure, sure. So when you invest in a syndication as a limited partner, the losses coming back are definitely going to be considered passive. And those passive losses can only offset passive income from your other passive activities. So I could have like 
a syndication that is producing positive net income and that's passive income. And then I could have another syndication that I've just invested in that's going to push back a big loss from like a cost segregation study. I can use the losses from syndication B to offset the income from syndication A. So you can cancel them out. But if I have net losses, even after I do, even after I offset all my income, if I have net losses, they are net passive losses and they get suspended and carried forward into future years until I can generate passive income or until I sell a syndication investment at a gain. So we don't lose the suspended losses. They just sit on our books to hang out until we can generate income to tap into them at some future point. Yeah. And one of the main reasons why I invest in syndications these days instead of your uh, little one-off single-family home is single-family homes, you can deduct it over, what, 27 years or so, which is very lame. <laughs> it's going to take forever to get that. But with, this, with the, when you do a cost segregation, which I typically pay maybe five grand to do one of those, I can extract a third of all the depreciation in the first year, distribute that to all passive investors. And I, I don't know what you're seeing, Brandon, but like typically on an investor load where they're using pretty healthy leverage, 70 to 80% loan to value, if they put in a hundred grand, they're getting anywhere from 50 grand to over a hundred grand of passive losses in the first year. But what are you kind of seeing as you guys put together all these K1s? Yeah, yeah, I think what we pegged somebody somebody in my firm was tracking this, and I believe the average was around ninety two percent of whatever dollar you invest is going to come back as a passive loss across all syndication investments that are out there. So that includes the fifties, that also includes the hundreds. Yeah, something I've been seeing these last few months. I don't know if you've been seeing deals with like COVID reserves. I don't know if that's the right term, but you've got to stick three to six months of reserves in the bank. Can be a substantial amount of money, but it's definitely been diluting the uh, the cost segregation a little bit, maybe bringing it down ten percent. But yeah. still pretty good. I mean, can't complain. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, we we've seen. I think that the COVID reserves are smart. You just never know what's going to happen over the, over the coming years. But yeah, <laughs> yes. And what's a newer thing too that you're seeing a lot in these deals are people are using this different class of investors, pref equity what it's called. It's kind of a uh, fixed rate of return. They get paid first, but they don't get any upside. But the one cool thing is they still are considered equity investors and therefore get a piece of the losses too. Yep. Yep. I mean, the nice thing about LLCs and syndications is that you can structure them really however you would like. So we've seen all sorts of interesting structures. I mean, the typical structure is some sort of 2080, 3070, 46 split between the GP and the LP. You can have a pref on there. But we've seen special allocations of depreciation and all sorts of fun stuff. We work with hardworking professionals looking to opt out of investments for the clueless. I mean, mainstream investing. We work with people we have a direct relationship while enjoying higher returns and a quicker path to financial freedom. I personally move my endorsement from turnkey rentals to syndications as my net worth has grown. However, the downside of many of these deals is that you need at least $50,000 to invest and the frequency of deals that meet my criteria is sporadic. Check out my article at simplepassivecashflow.com slash OFUND and learn how I always have cash on hand by using the American Home Preservation Fund as part of this one-two punch to be ready for a great deal while still making a double-digit return. I have been investing in AHP since 2016. AHP is a crowdfunding solution to the mortgage crisis in America, where collectively the fund and investors like you pull their money together and get great bulk discounts on distressed mortgages. 
It's a business model that I think gets stronger should a bump in the economy come, because this is where there will be even more distressed inventory for AHP to purchase. The American Home Preservation Fund aims to keep people in their homes so you can make a 10% return while making a positive social impact. Invest in as little as $100 by going to ahpservicing.com investors. And if you want the free Burn Zone book and learn about George Newberry's story, please send me an email at lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. I like to buy stuff. Well, that's a liability. Well, so an investor, you know, puts in a hundred grand and maybe gets 50 or $70,000 of his passive losses. Maybe take us through how do they use that, right? Yeah. So if I invest in a syndication and I receive a passive loss of any amount, the question is, can I use the passive loss? And let's assume that I don't have any other passive income. I don't have any other passive activities. That passive loss will be suspended and carried forward because I cannot use it. I don't have, I'm not a real estate professional. I'm not materially participating in anything. So I can't use that passive loss. But on the flip side, let's say that I built out my own real estate portfolio. So I have five duplexes and I self-manage those five duplexes. And let's assume that on those five duplexes, I, I materially participate and I qualify as a real estate professional. So those five duplexes are non-passive activities. When I then go and make a syndication investment, I can make an election to aggregate all of my rental activities into one activity for the purpose of this section 469 test. So what that means is if I put $50,000 into a syndication, when I've already qualified as a real estate professional and I already materially participate on my own portfolio, I can aggregate in the syndication investment into my overall portfolio. And then I can take a loss, a non-passive loss from that syndication investment. If I don't make that aggregation election, what happens is that syndication investment will still be considered passive. So even if I'm a real estate professional, and even if I materially participate in my my own portfolio, if I don't make that aggregation election, I still might not be able to use those losses. So by making the aggregation election, what I'm what I'm effectively doing is I'm recharacterizing that loss from passive to non-passive, and then I can take that loss. So what we'll what we'll see a lot of our clients do is build out their own real estate portfolio. They'll self-manage it. They'll do all the repairs. They'll coordinate with all the tenants themselves. It doesn't have to be anything. It doesn't have to be a substantial portfolio, but one that will drive you to the 750 hour test in more than half your time test to qualify as a real estate professional. And through that, they're also materially participating. So they have that non-passive portfolio and then they'll go and place syndication investments to boost their current year losses. And, and that's something that's very common that CPAs will not get on board with the aggregation or that grouping um, aspect right there. That's probably where you need a new CPA if you listen to that. This right now, and they look at you cross-eyed. I just all I say is like, well, that's why they have a day job, right? Figured it out. <laughs> there um, you go. So yeah, but if you if you if and, if and that's a good point. And if your CPA ever challenges you on that, then I would ask them to go fill out form eight five eight two. That's where all these losses get aggregated at the end of the day, and uh, see what they say after that. Hey, good point. I mean, we we talk a lot about this stuff on these podcasts or in these groups and. We're just giving you the ideas and the ammo. I mean, it's, I always tell my folks in my mastermind, like, look, you guys are empowered with this information. Your CPA to me isn't really a tax planner 
I mean, they're not planning for you, but they're there to do your paperwork. If you get a good one, yeah, maybe they can, but they don't know what deals they're going into. They don't know how much passive losses they're going to be. They don't know what the time horizon or the risk reward profile of those deals are. It's unfair for them to be able to tax plan out in the head. This is your job. This is your number one cost in life. You need to do it yourself. But these are kind of the building blocks of you know, starting to do it by yourself and kind of steer the ship on your own. But you kind of were talking about it a little bit. So people ask, I'm a high paid professional making over $200,000, $300,000 a year. How come I can't get these passive losses or PALs for short and offset my active W-2 salary and bring that gross income down? What's the deal, man? Yeah, well, the, the most simple way to explain it is that your W-2 business income, capital gain, stock sales, interest, dividend income, all of that income is considered non-passive. So if I go out and create a passive loss, I can't net my passive losses against my non-passive losses. So my goal then should be to recharacterize my passive losses as non-passive. And there's quite a number of ways that you can go about that. One of which I just described is especially affecting folks that are investing in syndications. But that needs to be the goal at the end of the day is how do I recharacterize my passive losses as non-passive if I'm trying to offset my other non-passive income. Right. And one of the, the big strategies that we like to use is if we if it if it's possible is the real estate professional status. But maybe break down that. I don't know what we'd call it, but that it's like a two-part test, right? There's kind of two things that they need to qualify for. Yes. Yeah. Two statutory tests and then a third uh hurdle that you have to get over. So the first the first two tests. You have to spend 750 personal service hours in a real property trader business in which you materially participate. So personal service hours, real property trader business, material participation, 750 hours. The second- so let's, let's, let's break that one down real quick. So that means being an LP and five syndication deals does not work because you're, a man, you're not a managing member. But what are a couple of examples that you see, like you mentioned a few rental properties, does that work? Yeah, well, so let's talk about that syndication investment. So it's 750 personal service hours in a real property trader business in which you materially participate. Now, the syndication is going to qualify as a real property trader business, but you, your personal service hours, if you think about the litmus test of a personal service hour, what that really means is, or, or the litmus test for it is, if I did not log the time that I'm logging, or if I did not spend the time that I'm spending on this activity, the activity would fail. The operation, the day-to-day operation would cease. Uh, if you're a limited partner investor, your personal service hours are not going to affect the underlying deal. So therefore, we're automatically out. But then we're also not materially participating as a limited partner. There's just no way that we can. So whenever we invest in limited partnership stakes or, or syndications as a limited partner, we're not able to hit personal service hours or material participation. So if we're trying to hit 750 personal service hours and a real property trader business in which we materially participate, we're already out because none of the hours that we log against that activity will actually count towards that 750 hour test. Yeah, and, and then another thing that we will just leave as a teaser for now is becoming a small part of that general partnership and being an active participation in there. Again, we can, we'll talk about that more next week when you come and join us on the mastermind call, but that's more of an inner circle type of activity. But what about for moving on to rental properties? Somebody just owns a few of them. Yeah, well, so that second test, that second statutory test for real estate professional status is spending more than half your time in real estate than you do anywhere else. 
which typically will kick out the W2 people, the business people, to be working part-time or not at all in order to hit that second test. So assuming that you can hit both of those tests, 750 hours and more than half the time, the next hurdle is to materially participate in my rental portfolio. And the, the issue that we run into or is typically, it's typically not gonna be an issue for landlords. If you, if landlording is your only real estate activity and whether you're landlording large projects or single family homes, if that's your only activity, you typically don't have to worry about the material participation test because you're gonna hit material participation on your way to 750 hours. But if you're a real estate agent, then you're not materially participating in your rental portfolio, but, but you at the same time could still be a real estate professional because I, as a real estate agent, could spend 1500 hours brokering deals all day long. Well, that's a real property trader business. They are personal service hours and I materially participate. So I meet test one, 750 hours. And by spending 1500 hours during the year, that indicates that it's my full-time job. So I also meet test two. So I'm a real estate professional as a real estate agent. But what if, if I forget to also material, materially participate in my rental portfolio, then my rental losses are still passive. So what we like to see is pretty significant participation by either you or your spouse in the rental portfolio itself uh, in order to hit those material participation tests or you do the landlording full time. That's all you do. And that was that's a big misnomer, right? Because people think, oh, I'll just have my spouse get a real estate license and then just sell one house a year or something like that. It doesn't not going to work. Not going <laughs> to work. Yeah, yeah. Another other thoughts are that I think for more of a credit investors listening to this podcast, it's like, is it worth it to buy three crappy houses and be the landlord and get real estate professional status? Well. In my opinion, unless your AGI is over three hundred thousand, and probably, I mean, you're you're not paying too much taxes. Let's yeah. be honest; it yeah. may not be yeah. worth it. Well, we we have a progressive system, right? So I think three hundred k. I think I think the twenty four percent tax bracket goes up to three hundred seventeen thousand dollars if you're married filing joint. So only after three seventeen are you taxed at what's the next one? Thirty two percent. So if you're in like 32, 35, 37, okay, yeah, we, we want to get creative here and try to mitigate. But but the, it, it, that's also a similar conversation to what I've been having with a lot of clients. So the CARES Act came out, everybody wants these big net operating losses. And so they're like, how much real estate should I buy to create a non-passive loss that wipes out all of my income and then creates a net, net operating loss that I can then carry back five years? Because that sounds cool. I'm like, well, Sure, but one hundred and whatever fifteen thousand dollars of this real estate loss that you have is only going to save you ten to twelve percent per dollar. So, to what extent do we want to create this loss? Like, we, we want to maximize the savings, so we might not want to create a huge loss in one year. We might actually want to space it out so that we stay in that thirty-five, thirty-seven percent range. Yeah, just to kind of highlight that for people. If you're making over $300,000 a year, real estate professional status is definitely something you should be looking at. I mean, there's wonderful things that can come of this, right? You have a one spouse making a lot of money, one that isn't perfect. That person can stay at home, take care of the family more. And actually, at the end of the day, the net on the financial statement is better because you're enacting the strategy. Mm -hmm. And if you're, I would say if you're under 100 maybe even $200,000 at AGI, this stuff isn't probably for you, which is why this is a credit investor mastermind type of topic. But I think for the lower net worth guys, the lower income guys, it's the, can you still take 
25 grand of passive losses off of like if you're making under 100 was it 100 150 or something like that mm-hmm. yeah maybe give, give some of the lower the lower income guys something to something yeah to yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and i think that if you're in the 22 to 24 percent tax bracket these these losses are still beneficial to a degree and for married filing joint you drop into the 12 percent tax bracket if you earn less than eighty thousand and like two hundred dollars so that's that 22% threshold and 24% I said was 115, but that's actually 171. So between 80,000 and $171,000 by married filing joint, I'm getting taxed at 22%. After 171K, now I'm being taxed at 24%. So if you're in that threshold, I still think that it's, it's potentially applicable. But to answer your question specifically, if you're earning less than $100,000, you have what they call a $25,000 passive loss allowance that you can claim. You have to be actively participating. You also have to own 10% of the activity. Active participation just means management decisions. It's a much lower bar than real estate professional status, than material participation. You don't have to worry about all of that. So if you're earning less than 100, you get a full $25,000 passive loss allowance. As you scale up to 150K in earnings, that $25,000 passive, passive loss allowance phases out. It phases out $1 for every $2 above 100K. So if I earn $110,000, I have phased out $5,000 of the passive loss allowance. Half of whatever my income is above 100 is how you calculate that. And so, so, so there's some strategies here. The first strategy is to manage my income if I'm in that, in that area. How do I do that? I can max out 401k contributions. We've had people at 150K contribute the full 401k contributions of 19,000 and or whatever that is in, in 2020, make that full contribution, drop your income, your modified adjusted gross income down to 141. And now you just unlock $9,500 of that passive loss allowance that you can then claim. And that $9,500 passive loss allowance then yields another $2,000 or so in tax savings for you. So all of a sudden my $19,000 contribution, my 401k saves me a lot more money than it would otherwise because it unlocks some of this passive loss allowance that I'm able to claim. So if you're less than 100K, you get a $25,000 passive loss allowance. If you're more than 100K, that starts phasing out. And once you reach $150,000, your $25,000 passive loss allowance has been phased down to $0. And I think like a most, I don't know about most, but a lot of CPAs, especially the more conservative ones, will definitely say, yeah, you're not an active manager, they'll kind of fight you on that claim. So you as an investor need to kind of know what the rules are to get what you're looking for. Because if not, they're not going to check the box for you. And this topic comes up a lot, right? Like their CPA says, well, are you actively participating? And they're like, well, you have a property manager. So they say you're not. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. You can be actively participating with a property manager. You might not be materially participating if you have a property manager, but those are two separate tests. Right. Material participating, like you said, is for real estate professional status, but for what we're talking about right here, it is just active participating and you're, you're making the shots. Somebody else is doing your dirty work, but you're calling the shots. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, but like, just to use an example, this is kind of tax time right now. This is tax time for everybody who's more of a sophisticated investor that actually files in October. Like once you get your return back, this is the stuff you should be checking, right? Did they did they maximize that twenty five thousand dollars? If you have the passive losses, and right. if you're under that threshold, and so this is where you have to kind of keep that in check and kind of drive the ship. But I'm sure Brandon just does it 
does it automatically. <laughs> <laughs> well, we trained our staff to try to do that automatically. We, we, we do make mistakes. I think everybody makes mistakes, especially when you're trying to crank through tax returns leading up to the deadline. But for the most part, uh, we, we get it right and we ask good questions. Yeah. And I, I know you guys, you kind of share my, the same sentiment as me. It's like you like to work with good clients, right? That know the stuff as opposed to walking in at a meeting with a client and then they're asking you wide blue ocean questions. What right. should I do, Brandon? Those, those are bad clients to work with. Right? Like yeah. you want them to kind of know this stuff and to kind of, you can work collaboratively with them and see what you guys can create. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's kind of my, my new mission is to, to educate investors across the country and empower them to have better conversations with their own advisors. So we've been like focused on a lot of educational content recently to help facilitate that. And it's been going pretty well. So just to kind of wrap things up, uh, things that you're seeing in the new stimulus plan, I think we're recording this in October before the election. But what are you, what are you kind of excited that might happen to, to be on the lookout for in terms of taxes? So the new stimulus plan, not a whole lot in there for real estate investors or that real estate investors should be aware of from a tax perspective. Obviously, they have all the eviction moratoriums in there that you should definitely uh, get up to speed on. But going forward, right now, we have this big payroll tax deferral that nobody's using that I'm aware of. If the Republicans win in November, the thought is that they will make that, that payroll tax deferral permanent next year. That's the thought. That's a, that is a prediction. I, I can't confirm that that will or will not happen. But that is something that they have promised if they win. On the flip side, if the Democratic Party wins in November, then we're going to, we will most likely see a lot of changes related to the tax code. We'll probably see some of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act provisions rolled back. We might see the elimination of the stepped up basis rules whenever you pass away and you pass your real estate onto heirs. Uh, they get to inherit the property at the fair market value. They can start depreciation all over. They wipe out all the gains, all the depreciation recapture. So that could potentially go away. And then 1031 exchanges are being challenged again, but I don't think that I, I would expect 1031 exchanges to stay within the code and not actually be pushed out. There's, yeah, I, I'm a big advocate for like, I don't really care about the 1031 exchange. Let them have it. I mean, with bonus depreciation, that's what I really care about. Right now, the sunset it starts in what, 2022 or something like that. It starts to step down and phase out. You think yeah. that's going to be going away or extending? Jim, bonus depreciation? Yeah, with the, the heavy, with the cost segregations with bonus depreciation. Yeah, so bonus depreciation is going to start being phased out in 2022 or in 2023. It drops to 80% and then the next year 60, then 40, then 20, then zero. So I would expect at some point Congress to reconvene on that and try to figure out if they want to keep it or not. Uh, bonus depreciation has been around for a while. Whenever it sunsets, it gets extended. We might see the similar treatment again. Yeah. And when you see in Democratic or Republican Party, you're meaning the Senate, right? Just so that people yes. get it clear. Yeah. Presidential. It's just a bigger head. Yeah. But yeah, I want you to give your contact information and folks get a hold of you. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, no problem. You can contact me at www.therealestatecpa.com. We've got a lot of educational content on there. That real estate professional status, we have a 12,000 word guide on exactly how it works. 
full with internal revenue code citations and tax court cases so that we're not BSing you. <laughs> There's a lot of bad content out there on real estate professional status. So we decided to set the record straight. So check that out. That's all on our website. And again, that's www.therealestatecpa.com. And I'll put all these uh, resources, including this video, up at simplepassivecashflow.com slash tax, that's slash T-A-X. And if you guys want to join our mastermind, check it out at simplepassivecashflow.com slash journey. Brandon's going to be in there, I think, next week, Monday, answering all my more mischievous questions on tax and different ideas I have that we kind of talk about in our little cave amongst ourselves. So, all right, guys, we'll talk to you guys later. Bye. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.